want you to imagine <clears throat> that you are aware that you have just one week to live. You are healthy, you are strong, you're not limited by that. But you know that in one week, you will be gone from this world. I want you to reflect for just a moment. How would you live that week? What would you do? Chances are you would live it very, very differently than you would otherwise. As I was reflecting on this, I know what I would do, and probably most of you would do the same. I would connect with people. I would connect with people, and I would encourage them, I would bless them, I would challenge them, I would go to my children and my grandchildren, and I would lay out a biblical vision for their lives, I would pass on to my wife things she needs to know, like passwords to our bank accounts, <laughs> might be helpful. But I would live that week in light of the fact that I would not be here a week from now. This morning, as we remember Jesus entering to, into Jerusalem for that very last time, we are remembering that he knew that he had just a little less than a week left in his life. And so what he did is what probably most of us would do. He built into the people who would remain and would carry on the ministry of Jesus that we see in our world today. We, what Jesus did was to speak and build and train and equip his disciples, helping them to understand what it's going to mean when he is crucified, and then when he raises from the dead, and then when he ascends into heaven, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and they will continue to work, do the work of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in the world. Jesus would spend that last week correcting the religious leaders and pointing out where they are wrong so that the people understand that what they are doing and what they are proclaiming is not who God is. This is such an important week that nearly one-third of all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are committed to the last week in the life of Jesus. That's how important this week is. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at one great teaching of Jesus from each of the four Gospels in the last week of his life, because God wants us to understand how it is that we are to live in the in-between time of his death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven, and until he returns again. And we see that in his, the teaching of his last week. Well, that day he entered into Jerusalem. And as we saw from the children, which was just extraordinary, and it's, I have such a great seat up front because I can turn around and I see all of you. And it's so amazing. And I see you worshiping and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, as the crowds did on that day. 
Well, Jesus came and he entered on the foal of a donkey, a colt, the colt of a donkey. Probably had never been ridden before. It's interesting to me that the that the disciples were instructed to bring both the donkey and the foal of the donkey. My guess is to make sure that that little foal had the comfort of its mother there with it as it would be ridden for the first time. Why would Jesus come riding the foal of a donkey? I mean, he's a great king. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ that they've been waiting for. You would expect that he would come on a great stallion. You would expect that he would ride in on a regal chariot, but he doesn't. He comes riding on the foal of a donkey because, you see, he is not the king they they are expecting. He doesn't come in wealth. He comes in poverty. He doesn't come in power as we understand power, he comes in meekness. He doesn't come as they expected to drive the Roman Empire out of Israel. He comes to do something far more important. He comes to deal with the greatest problem that we have as people, the problem of sin and the problem of death. And he comes that day riding on the foal of a donkey, making it very clear that he is not the kind of king that they expected. And so they cried out to him, not fully understanding, not even his closest disciples fully understood his mission, his purpose. He had told them, but they were so ingrained with an understanding of the Messiah that he would be a great military leader to restore Israel's independence and power. They were so geared into that image that when God came, many did not even recognize him because he didn't meet their expectations. How often do we have expectations for Jesus? Jesus will not not come to conform to our expectations He will come, praise God, to be who he is, and we are to conform to him. And so he comes in that day, and he enters through the east gate. There are about, at that time, about seven different gates in the city of Jerusalem, which you could enter or exit. Jesus came that day, we know, from the east, into the east gate. He came from the east. We know by the towns that he was at before he came into Jerusalem. We know, too, that he immediately went into the temple, and this east gate is closest to the temple. He came in the east gate. The east gate is also called beautiful gate. The east gate is also called the gate of eternal life. The Jews, according to Ezekiel, knew that the Messiah would come from the east. In fact, today, if you go to the Mount of Olives, you will see a very large cemetery. It's Jews who have died and been buried, and every Jew in that cemetery is buried with their feet facing east so that when the Messiah comes, we know he's already come, but they're still waiting, they will be ready to leap to their feet as the Messiah comes. 
I remember when Beth and I were there and we had a, we had a guide who, boy, he knew the Bible. He knew the Bible. He was a Jewish guide and, and he, was, he was open to the gospel and you could see that he was on, God was working in his heart. And as he described that to us, other feet were pointing east because they were waiting for the, for the Messiah to come. I said to him, which gate did Jesus enter on that last week? And he kind of smiled and he said, well, the east gate. I said, yeah, he's the Messiah. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the Messiah, the Christ who came and still comes. He rode in on a donkey. A donkey is often referred to as a, burst of, a beast of burden. That's what they called donkeys back then. And, and they were beasts of burden. They carried things. They pulled agricultural equipment. They were beasts of burden. And I remember when I first heard that thinking, Jesus came to take my burden upon himself. Jesus came to die for me. He came to take my burdens upon himself. And so he rode a donkey representing that reality. Friends, the Bible is so full of incredible pictures to help that point to Jesus. Well, I want to share with you four teachings this morning that come, one from the Gospel of Matthew, one from Mark, one from Luke, one from John. If you're not familiar with the Bible, those four, those four books are what we call the Gospels, the good news about Jesus. And they are the four accounts of the life of Jesus. And it's amazing. You, you can't just read one. You need all four. Because each of them was touched by Jesus in different ways. And they emphasize different things. And we get this incredible picture of Jesus. But I want to take a teaching from each of these books in the last week of Jesus. And I invite you to follow along with me. Important last words. Here's the first thing that I want you to see. Jesus challenges us, knowing that he is going to the cross, knowing that he is not going to be with him as he has been before. He wants them to understand that he is coming back again. He challenges us to live in constant expectation of his return. What does that mean? We are to live each day in light of the fact that Jesus his return is imminent. Now, imminent to us might mean today, but he said these are the last days. Now, the last days have been 2,000 years, but to God, that's the blink of an eye. So it's not on our time, it's on his time. But I want you to hear Jesus has been teaching. He has been teaching in the Gospel of Mark. He's been teaching about his return. And as he talks about his return, he gives us some different things that we can kind of look for. Reality is, many of those things we have seen in many different generations. I'm going to do a series at some point because there's a lot of misunderstanding on the teaching of the return of Jesus, and we're going to talk about that probably um, a year from now. But what we see here is that Jesus wants us to understand that he's coming back. Now, he doesn't want us just to understand it. He wants us to do something about it. 
He wants us to live in light of this reality. So here's what he says. But concerning that day when he's coming back, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Only the Father, Jesus said. At that point, Jesus had no idea when he was coming back. Only the Father knew when he was returning. But, on, but here's the key. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. You and I do not know when the time will come. So here's what he says. Be awake. Keep alert. Don't fall asleep. Invariably, when the New Testament talks about the return of Jesus, you see these challenges. Be awake. Don't fall asleep. Be alert. What does that mean? It means be prepared and live in light of the future return of Jesus. Live each day in light of eternity. Here's the reality. We are so bombarded by our world. We are so bombarded by the values of our world that what most of us do is we dig our tent stakes deep into this world. And we live as if this world is all there is. People of faith are to live in light of the reality that Jesus is coming back. We weren't created to live a lifetime, friends. We were created to live an eternity. And so we are to be ready. We are to be prepared. We are to have our eyes open. We are to be alert. For we do not know the moment that that time will come. What would it look like for you? What would it look like for you to live each and every day this week in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back and you and I don't know when? We don't know when. We, there's lots of teaching out there. People claim to know. When I was in high school, we had a pastor that came, and I was at a secular school, and that pastor came to speak to one of my classes, and he said, Jesus is returning, and he gave us a date in 1982, I think it was, or 1981. It was going to be 40 years after Israel became a nation. He was wrong. We don't know. The angels don't know. But I know it's coming back. And I want to be ready. Listen to what he says. It's like a man going on a journey. Okay, and this was a common picture. You have servants, you're going on a journey. He leaves home and he puts his servants in charge. Okay, who did Jesus put in charge? Us. We're his disciples. His hands, his feet, his mouth. We are his disciples. Each with our work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Because here's what would happen. That person, they didn't have cell phones, that person, that master would come back, and they better be ready for his return. They better not be sleeping. They better have done the things that they were supposed to do. You see, we're going to be held accountable for how we live our lives. And I want to be found ready. This week, I read um, an incredible book that somebody in the church had, had given me to, re to read, and it was a story of a man named Borneo Bob. And I read that book this week, and it really challenged me. Here was a guy who went to Indonesia as a missionary, and his, he lived his life as a life of faith. He gave everything he had that people would hear the good news of Jesus. 
I felt challenged by that. Because even as a pastor, I find myself dig, digging my, my tent stakes into this world. And not living in light of the reality that he's coming back again. Would you be ready? What would it take for you to be ready? Here's a second thing that Jesus wanted us to know. And that is that we would be a good steward of all that the Lord has given to us. Now, a steward is somebody who's been entrusted with something. God has entrusted us with what? Well, he entrusted us with the message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He entrusted us with what we call the gospel, the good news. What are we supposed to do with that? We are supposed to live it out. We are supposed to share it. We are supposed to tell people the good news of what Jesus has done for us. We are to tell the story of Easter. We are to tell the story of Good Friday. We are to live out the message that God has given to us in his word. We are to continue the ministry of Jesus. As it says, we are his witnesses in Acts 1. In 2 Corinthians, it reminds us that we are his ambassadors. We are his stewards. We are to live out his purposes in this world. And he has planted us in this community. We are to be those who proclaim the message of Jesus in this community, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. He has given each of us who is a Christian, he's given us a spiritual gift or gifts and we are to live out those gifts. We are to serve the church of Jesus Christ, the, the kingdom of God, by using the spiritual gifts that God has given to us. And friends, that does not end when we retire from our jobs. And that does not begin when we get married and start having kids. The moment we come to faith, we use the gifts that God has given to us, and we use them until we take our very last breath. What is a spiritual gift? It's a gift that God has given to us that he has empowered, a gift that will change the world as we live faithfully in that gift. In the fall, we're going to be doing an amazing series here. It's going to be seven weeks long. And we are going to give you incredible opportunities to learn about your spiritual gifts. We're going, to, we're going to train and equip our people over seven weeks in a way we never have before. Because we have mission. We have purpose. All of us together. And so God calls us to be good stewards of the myriad of gifts that he has given to us. Well, we read that in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is telling what is called a parable. A parable is a story in which Jesus has a point of teaching. Listen to what he's talking about. He's talking about a, a, a master who's going to be leaving, and he gives three servants what are called talents. Now, a talent is a measure of wealth. Um, it's one talent was about 6,000 denarii, which was a, a coinage. And so it's, it's a measure of wealth. He gives five talents to one of his 
gifts to one of his stewards. To another servant, he gives two. To another servant, he gives one. And then he leaves. And then he comes back. And now there's going to be accountability for each of the servants and how they have used the talents that they have been given, how they have invested the talents that they have been given. Well, the first one who received five talents, what he did was he had invested, he used them, and he doubled them. Now they are ten talents. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. The second the second servant who received two talents had multiplied those, had invested them, had used them, and they became four talents. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. The last servant, I'm going to pick on you. And there's a reason I pick on you. One talent. He dug a hole and buried his talent. So when the master returned, he had still just the one talent. And then we read this. His master said to him, oh, I'm sorry. He says he brings conviction. He brings conviction to the third steward. You see, the third servant did not invest. He did not invest the talent. It did not multiply, for he did nothing with it. Who, what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about what we are doing in this lifetime, in this world, in the time that he's given us. He is talking about how we are to invest, to use the gifts that he has given to us, the gift of faith, the gift of of the gospel, the gift of the spiritual gifts, the gift of serving, the gift of being all that he has called us to be. I want to ask you today, when you stand before God, at this point in your life, can you say, I have invested what God gave to me, and it grew. It had impact. It made a difference. I want my life when I am done, I want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And friends, I had to think about this this week because there are areas where I am not using, I am not being faithful, a faithful steward of what God has provided. And I, as I reflected on that in my life, I rededicated myself to being faithful, more faithful with the gospel more faithful with the gifts that God has given me, more faithful with the opportunities that I have to be with God's people, to fellowship with God's people, to worship with God's people, and to minister in a world that is incredibly dark and lost. When I take my last breath and look back over my life, I want to know that I've been faithful and that God has multiplied the gifts he's given me because I have been willing to use them. Here's a third thing that we see, and that is seek to be a servant in our relationships. Remember, Jesus is teaching us 
how to live in the in-between time of his ascension into heaven, his first coming, and his second coming. And he says that we are to live in a way that is dramatically different from the way the world lives. We are to live as servants in this life. Even if we have a position of prestige, even if we have a position of authority, even if we are a leader, we are to be servants. We are to look not to our needs and our desires. We are to serve those that God brings along the path of our lives. We're to be servants in the home as parents, as spouses, as children. We are to be servants in the church, no matter our position. We are to be servants in the school. We are to be servants in the neighborhood. We are to be servants in the workplace. We are to be servants when we're out on the ball field. We are to be servants when we're out to dinner. So one of the things I try to do as best I can is to serve the people that are, quote-unquote, serving me. It's a different attitude. It's a different attitude. I find people, when they have somebody serving them in a restaurant, ordering them around as if they're beneath them. I want to treat them as if they are equal to me and have value. So I seek ways to bless them. I seek ways to inspire and encourage them. I have been studying these passages this week, and so I got my hair cut on Friday. I asked if they could put a fan up here and kind of blow it. Yeah. And I was thinking about being a servant. And so I took out, uh, after she cut my hair, I took that, you know, the little wisp broom and the, uh, that thing. Dustpan, I know, but thank you for telling me because I couldn't remember. And I cleaned up my hair. Because I'm thinking, she shouldn't have to clean up my hair. It's my hair. And so I, I thought, okay, that's easy to do there, but what about in my marriage? What about with my children? What about that person that is just really hard to love? Nobody in here, by the way. What about that person who's just unkind to me and makes my life miserable? Listen to what Jesus said. He said, he's talking about people who are in power and lord their power over them. You see, the religious community of the day, they didn't live as servants. They were, they were lording their authority over the people. Anybody in a position of authority, any king, would lord their power over others. And how did Jesus enter Jerusalem? Not on a stallion, not on a regal chariot, but on a donkey. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus says this, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at table. So reclining, that's, think about a restaurant. They would recline when they ate. So they're reclining at the table and they have servants that serve them. 
But then he says, but I am among you as the one who serves. Friends, if Jesus came to serve, I can say with great confidence that you and I are to follow his example. The king of the universe, we sang about that, didn't we? He's the Lord of all things. He's the Lord of all people. But he came as a servant, and he called us to follow that example. What would it look like if we weren't working for our purposes, but we worked for the purposes of God, and we didn't have an attitude about people serving me, but we had an attitude, I want to serve others. I was reading an article this week uh, about uh, a company that many of you have heard of. It's Columbia Sportswear. I've got one or two things, I think, from Columbia. But Tim Boyle is the president and CEO. And when COVID hit and things were shut down, they had 3,500 employees, and they lost just about every, every store that they had was shut down. And the challenge was, how are we going to pay our employees? So Tim Boyle, the CEO of, of this company, he decided that he would, his salary would go from $3 million to $10,000. Ten of his top executives took 15% less pay, and they made that money available to their employees so they would not lose their employees. See, I love that. That's the right heart. That's somebody who understands their employees aren't there to serve them. Their employees are there as fellow people, as part of this company. He says this. He says, Columbia has been in business since 1938 and weathered many storms by keeping our focus on the well-being of our consumers, the well-being of our employees, and the well-being of being part of a larger community. I've worked, uh, I worked in business before I became a pastor, and I worked for companies that didn't have that attitude. I worked for people who really lorded it over me. We are to be servants. Servants. I remember having a pastor at a church that I was at. He's one of my associates, and, and his, the perception people I had of him was that he was a little bit pompous, a little bit egotistical. And I, I, I think in many ways they misread him, but um, it's the way he carried himself. But I'll never forget when that attitude changed. He was on a mission trip with a lot of our people, and they went into a, they were staying at a place, and the kids had eaten something, or the people had eaten something that was, did not settle well with them, and the bathroom was just, whew. use your imagination. And this pastor, without ever being asked, went in there on his hands and knees, and he cleaned the whole thing. You see, there was no job that was beneath him, for he lives as Christ called him to live as a servant. The final thing I want you to see comes from the Gospel of John. The life that God calls us to live is a life that you cannot live apart from him. I can't live apart from him. So how am I going to do all the things that Christ has called me to do and called me to be? How am I going to do that? Well, Jesus told us. In the Gospel of John from chapters 13 through 17 is 
this is how you live. This is how you get to live as a disciple. This is how you get there. So here it is. He says this. He says, live in me, abide in me. Live in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you bear fruit in your life unless you abide in me, unless you live in me. I cannot bear fruit for the kingdom of God unless I abide in Jesus. Because anything great for the kingdom of God that comes from my life will come as a result of God doing it. I just get to be part of it. Does that sound awesome? That's amazing. I have gotten to see God do amazing things in my life, not because I'm talented, far, far from it. You cannot see fruit unless you are abiding in Christ. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? It means to live in him. What does it mean to live in him? It means every day submitting your life fully to him. It means every day living in his word in such a way that his word is transforming you. It means living in constant prayers. The day goes on, you just bubble up in prayers to the Lord. Prayers of gratitude, prayers of praise, prayers of need. It is learning that God is here and by his spirit he lives in you and you can fellowship with him and commune with him. And as you submit more and more to the work of God in your life through the Holy Spirit, God will do eternal things in you and through you. Friends, there is nothing better than that. If all of us here in this place today decided that we were going to abide in Christ, the world, the community, the nation would be transformed. God is waiting for us to abide in him. Now, I want to challenge you to begin to do that today. But I want to tell you that in the fall, we are going to be doing something that I've never done before, and I can't wait to do it because I think it is going to be incredibly significant for us as a church, as a family, as a body. Abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. I want to close with this, this story. It's by... Uh, uh, a man named N.T. Wright. Many of you have heard of him, maybe read some of his materials. But I want you to hear this. I had to read it a few times and kind of reflect on it, and it just keeps opening my eyes to things. And so, as I give this to you this morning, I want to invite you to kind of meditate on it, reflect on it, think about it beyond, beyond this morning. He says, imagine a family of four living in a modest home. It's a good home, meets their needs, but it's also far from perfect. Pipes are aging, the floors are scratched, walls have marks on them, kitchen is dated. One day, Grandpa visits and tells them, I am saving money to do a major renovation of your house. In 10 years, I'll redo everything for you. New floors, appliances, wiring, roof, siding, landscaping, everything's going to be redone. That night they celebrated and they talked about their dream house, but after their beloved grandpa left, they faced a dilemma. How do they live until the new house is ready? How do I live in this in-between 
the first coming of Jesus and his return. How do I live in that? With some sarcasm, the oldest son says, who cares how we live? It's all going to get redone. So I say we trash this place and live it up. You've known people like that. The daughter says, we can just live here, but let's spend all of our time and energy dreaming about the house that is to come. Let's just dream about heaven. Let's not do anything. Just dream about it. The father says, well, I'm not fixing anything in this house. If it breaks, it'll stay broken. I'm not patching holes. I'm not sanding floors. I'm not fixing doors. As long as the roof does not collapse, I'm not touching it. The family's mom listened quietly, the wise one, as always. And she said, here's the thing. It's going to be wonderful to get a brand new home. But we need to live as if this is becoming brand new. If we trash this house, we'll just learn how to trash houses. We should dream and plan for the new house. But if we only think about the new home, we'll miss the goodness that is still here and the purpose that is still here. And if we never fix anything, we'll need to live with things, more broken things than are necessary. Seeing broken things will only bring sadness. So she concluded, so from now on, you need to imagine that we're living in the new house now and live in this house just as we will in our new one. What does that mean? Yeah. I'm to live in eternity, but it starts now. It doesn't start when I die. Jesus has already come through the Holy Spirit. I already have opportunity to fellowship with him. I don't have to wait till heaven. My life with God doesn't start when I die. It started the moment I believed. I'm not going to live my life waiting for that. I'm going to live my life seeking Christ now and living the purpose he created me for now. That's my desire. That's my dream. And then he says this, what counts is formation in the present time of a character that properly anticipates the promised future state to share in the new world, the new creation that has already begun in Christ. Amen? Man, that excites me. Will you pray with me? Our Father, thank you. Thank you for the amazing things that you are doing. Lord, as I reflect on your teaching in this last week, I'm reminded, I'm reminded, Lord, of how amazing you are, that you didn't just say, here you go, here's the keys, good luck, but you said, no, I'll drive the car if you let me. I'll lead your life if you allow me. I will guide you. I will speak to you. I will encourage you. I will challenge you if you just let me. Father, I know for me this week, I have had to confess many things. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each and every heart this morning, each and every mind this morning, because we're reminded that you want to do immeasurably more than we've ever asked or can even imagine. Our dream for our lives is so small, is so pitiful compared to your vision and purpose for our lives. That's what we want. That's what we hunger for.
That's what we long for. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.